Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Naman Ahuja. He is professor and dean of the School of Arts and Aesthetics at uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University. Um, he's also the general editor of um, uh, an important uh, magazine called Marg Publications. We'll talk about that and we'll talk about a very special um, um, 75 years of Marg issue that's just recently out um, on on the temple. Uh, Naman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Tell me a a little bit about Marg. What is Marg and perhaps how did it come into being? Well, the Modern Architectural Review Group, which is what it really stood for right at the beginning, was created in 1946 by Mulkraj Anand and a group of other um, very radical thinkers who were confronted with the dilemma of what to do with the new independent country. India was just going to be become independent and it was going to be slaughtered in the process of that independence. And something had to be done about what was going to be the cultural vision for this country going forward. Was it just going to live in the past and embrace the old, or was it going to have a modern view of embracing a new future cognizant of its past? And how does it carry the richness, the enormous richness of its past with it, without becoming a country that was going to be trapped in a vision of its past, but yet be able to mold its future aware of the richness that it brought with it. That's a particular challenge that was very, very hard. And I think one that remains really valid for us even today, because it's it's a tough one when you're living separated from your own country and your own roots. And it's such a rich country that you want to be able to own and possess. You want to be proud of it. And yet at the same time, you have this sense of nostalgia and longing, which can overtake you. And, and so it's about how do you shape a, a modern future while still being aware of the past. past. And so Marg was born and it was uh, filled with an editorial group of well-wishers who really came from, South, uh, from, from all over South Asia, but also came with very strong international links with the intelligentsia in the UK, the US and in France. And uh, in the early years, Marg was even produced bilingually in French and English for a while um, to be able to deal with uh, multiple audiences. So that's really how Marg came about. And for the past 76 years, it has been producing a quarterly journal, um, which brings out very well illustrated large format magazines which deal with complex issues about Indian heritage that have to be documented sometimes for the first time. Uh, The pioneering, most pioneering studies come out in this journal and then analysis about it um, comes out. So that's what Mark does. Tell us a bit about this uh, special issue uh, in honor of the 75th year of Mark. Well, you know, when an old, when, when you turn 75, you know, I think a moment comes when you have to either sort of adopt sannyas and go away forever, or you, you have a moment at least of reflection. 
and say, well, what have I achieved in 75 years? And what's my future going to hold? And so we decided that this would be a moment to go into our family vault, as it were, and look at who have been the people that have made Marg what it is, what they have written, what they have contributed to the history of South Asian culture, and who are these great luminaries? And we found that Marg has done yeoman service in the field of textiles, dance, painting, modern architecture, but also in the field of classical Indian temples. And the latest issue is the first in a series that is coming out to the public, which has come out to the public. The first one in the series is the one on temple art and architecture. And it's called A Reader on the Temple, um, which is drawn from 75 years of Marg's articles and studies on the temple. And the whole book is a bumper issue, which is arranged chronologically. So it looks at the early foundations of the concept of the temple, and then how it progresses through time, through history, all the way through to the 20th century, looking at modern compulsions when we are building temples and modern technology. And how does, what does a modern temple look like? But at its foundation, what I've tried to do with this volume is go back to the very core concept of what is a temple? Who wants a temple? And on what occasions do they build a temple? Now, most Hindus would think that this is an irrelevant question because a, a temple just exists and it's part of your landscape, but it's actually not because image worshiping is not part of the landscape. Um, it's not a given conclusion. So if you can worship in your mind, and if the divine can be antaryamin within one, then what is the need for this externalization to even have a temple? And therefore the divide and the debates about what is appropriate for a temple has been changing through history, depending on who wants to interpret the subject. So by redefining what a temple stands for, I hope I'm being able to communicate through the selection of articles in this book as to what the changing definitions and expectations of temples are. And what the different chapters in this book try and reveal is that in time, the institution of the temple became so wealthy and such a controlling force that it became a major seat of administration, controlling vast amounts of land, collecting huge amounts of revenue, maintaining trade relations with different parts of Southeast Asia and East Africa, and um, becoming a business model as much as it was a center for worship. So it's a very interesting uh, uh, study of how it aligns administration, statecraft with business, with piety at one, at one, point, at one point in its history. There are other articles in the books that deal with many other types of issues, which I'd be happy to address if you had any queries. Uh, the the it's it's a without question a, a, a rich rich publication, both in terms of its visual storytelling and also in terms of its scholarly storytelling. Um, rich, probably particularly for for folks who study visual culture and study temples or are interested there. And um, the, 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 there's so many directions. Um, uh, you mentioned business model, the business model of the temple. I want to touch on uh, the business model or lack thereof of the magazine. 
Tell us a bit about the status. Of, uh, <laughs> tell us a bit about the status of the magazine. <laughs> the lack thereof. Well, thank you. You've touched her own up. You're spot on over there. Well, you see, Marg is a charitable organization. It's been a non-for-profit, and our mandate has been not just to serve the cause of Indian art worldwide, for which we don't, for the international audience, we don't subsidize Marg. But you know, a single issue of Marg is sold at a 350 rupees in India. Um, and it's a full color, glossy 150 page magazine that comes out on art paper with archival value. And they become collectible issues. And the reason is that we've always had sponsors and got people to underwrite the expenses of Marg as an educational enterprise to be able to get South Asian cultural history available, made available to a South Asian readership. And it's not easy when you're producing such a sumptuous and good looking artwork because uh, very odd things happen. You might have the best of intentions, but the strange thing is we have to deal with dealers and booksellers and distributors like every businessman does. And they can undercut you in curious ways because they can, this is such a collectible item that what happens is that they hoard copies. So as soon as the mark gets printed, 400 or 500 copies of mark disappear off the radar and don't actually reach the right, right bookshops because they get dealers hold on to them and then release them into the market at inflated prices and so on subsequently because they become collectible. It's been a tough business model to maintain, to be able to, as a charitable organization, to make Marg available. But the good thing is that despite all these odds, we continue to publish every year. And we have been publishing for 76 years now. And we've not sort of lost an issue as it were. We've been in continuous publication since then. And apart from the four flagship journals that we produce every year, we also produce about three to four books every year. And um, those are also dealing with aspects of cultural history of South Asia. They can also deal with natural history and the environment, which are closely tied with the whole subject of cultural history. You can't study one without really studying the other. So we try and deal with both together. Um, anthropology becomes as much a part of what we do. Marg as a business model, well, they're, they're available for sale on the Marg website, which is now becoming more and more active. And digital dissemination has made life a lot easier. And also it's selling through um, online portals like Amazon and so on is becoming a lot easier nowadays. Um, but one would still like to be able to revive old fashioned readership where people would still subscribe and want the hard copy because the graphic design and photographs of Marg are as much a part of what the book stands for, uh, not just the editorial copy. And on-screen communication is quite different from printed photographs that you can actually spend hours in a relaxed way over and look at. And that's, that's a different kind of communication. 
Absolutely. Um, so rumor has it, uh, I do a very popular podcast, <laughs> the one that you're on, um, um, where I receive a, a number of publications. And, you know, uh, the various guests, uh, there's, there's a certain cycle of uh, invite the guest um, and then have the the book, the hard copy shipped to me and then et cetera, et cetera. Um, especially over the pandemic, a vast majority, if not all, uh, such books were sent electronically for a good yeah. year, year and a half. It was only until about a month or two ago that I started receiving hard copy books again. And it's a world of difference actually engaging a physical book in your hand. And this is just text. I mean, some of the books, we had a, a wonderful uh, interview uh, of Emma Stein very recently on um, um, her monograph on um, Kanchipuram. Temples in Kanchi, etc. Um, so there, some of the books have visuals, but even just text, it's so refreshing to have a physical copy of a book. For something like Marg, um, it, it's a whole new level. The, the uh, you know, there was an, there's another story about it. I teach, as you said, as a, I'm a professor at JNU, and you know, over the pandemic, we began to realize something that we hadn't factored we're moving and hurtling towards a digital revolution that we would all like. But, you know, there was still about 20% of my students every year who didn't own laptops. And they were borrowing smartphones from their parents or would come into postgraduate university, but couldn't actually afford or didn't have their own personal laptops. And um, especially in the social sciences and in humanities or religious studies and history and so on, there were a lot of people who didn't have that technology. And reaching out to them meant that I was still photocopying vast amounts of data and sending them parcels every three weeks of reading material during the pandemic that they could actually look at because in their villages, they couldn't actually access all of this material. The internet connectivity wasn't good enough. They didn't even have devices. Um, so we can't always take this, uh, the democracy of the digital as something which is, could be taken for granted. It isn't yet there. And so the 350 rupee mark actually was a lot more affordable. And if there was a charity that people could actually put their money to, I, I think this would still remain a worthy cause because I still don't think we're completely out of the woods and in that kind of a space where we can uh, rely on the digital as substituting what the printed can do. I hope we can, and I'm all. I'm not. I'm not in favor of cutting down trees for making paper, but I still think that uh, we do need to keep this alive. We certainly live in a transitional time where um, certain elements of the pandemic um, are here to stay. Uh, you know, a great example, for example, I do, I teach it, I currently teach literally at uh, four, five, no, what, I just finished one, I have four different platforms, and they're all online. Right. Online education is not going anywhere. No, it's not. However, you know, I'm currently organizing a retreat, an in-person retreat for some such online students, because at the same time, by the same token, in-person communication and transmission is irreplaceable. And so we sort of have to find this, 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 this path of, 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 of what elements of the pandemic serve us um, without uh, supplanting or eclipsing, um, you know, uh, real world or um, glossy um, hard copy magazines, etc. 
I have a question for you. Um, you probably would be well poised to, to, to comment on this. Um, how do you see Mark fitting into scholarly trends? Well, over the past 15 years, there has been 15, 20 years, there has been more and more of an acknowledgement in other aspects of social science as to what visual culture can do as a source material. And today, when you go and study religious studies, you can't study it without studying iconography, and you can't study it without actually looking at images and art and architecture, because the lived expression of the religion comes out through what used to be the preserve of art history and anthropology. Um, art history itself has changed because it has undergone so much through anthropology that we now refer to it more and more as visual culture. And visual culture has become now a constitutive part of what is history writing, the capacity to be able to reconstruct histories, not on the basis of what was the written word that was left behind to us from antiquity or in sacred texts that were left behind or in epigraphs on monuments, but instead to be able to tell a history by being able to read images. I, I guess if there was any further ratification of that that was required in the world of emoticons, this has become completely you know, uh, apparent to everyone where visual communication has just swept the world and Facebook and Instagram and it's just a, a world of visual communication suddenly once more. So the capacity to be able to read images is becoming more and more a part of social systems. And the history of reading images is something that we also need to bear in mind that what is the longer history of how do we deal with images and what how images communicate. So we are looking at it um, as the role of hardback illustrated histories that have been preserved for the past 76 years and documented so much do have a role to play in the way scholarship in the world is moving now. Fascinating. Uh, one of the courses I'm currently teaching at uh, the University of Lethbridge is uh, one that I designed called Myths of India. So we're looking, it's narrative, Purana, like it's narrative, it's narrative, it's uh, being engaged in stories and storytelling, etc. But uh, the slides always include the iconography of the deities that we are, we are, we are talking about that, that exist in the narratives. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'd like to sort of share with folks is, uh, to disabuse them of this myth in a pejorative sense, not myth as in mythology, of this myth that, you know, iconography is for the illiterate or the pre-modern. <laughs> and that, you know, when you're looking at the iconography of Shiva or whomever, you know so much more about Shiva than you think you do. That's being communicated instantly by this image on some level. And you know, is this is this so different from a clown with golden arches and red shoes or or whatever modern uh symbols that we might use on Instagram, etc. Um, the volume is so rich. Uh, if you don't mind, why don't you touch on the eight sections and talk a little bit about what, what they do or what they're about, the, the, the sections of it? Well, it was quite difficult to be able to bear down um, the richness of what Marg has in its archive into these eight sections. And to be able to figure out what they should each concern be concerned with. I think most readers will find that it is a well-arranged, chronologically arranged volume. It's also a volume that 
pays attention to the different types of temples and different parts of India. So it moves away from the well-trodden and all too well-known Tanjavur and Khajuraho and Konark and um, you know, whatever temples, the most celebrated temples, Ranakpur, Mount Abu, etc. It deals with those. It's not that it doesn't deal with those, but it moves beyond them to come up with extraordinary types of temples that were being created, which were great centers in Kashmir, in Bengal, in Karnataka. Then it contrasts them with the little temples in each of these places, the wayside shrines, the everyday shrines that people had appended to their homes and palaces and whatever else and their villages. That becomes an important constitutive element. It, the book opens with the question that firstly, temples were not made only for Hindus, it says rather provocatively, right as the opening statement. And the second statement it makes is, and they were not made only in India. And so it expands and it looks at the idea of temples as they migrate out of India. I would have loved to have included temples that, have, that are being made in Europe and America now. But I mean, I think I've touched on it obliquely through the um, modern architecture that is emerging and the compulsions of modern architects in the last chapter. But before that, I have a chapter that actually deals with temples in Southeast Asia and what was being done in Indonesia and in Thailand and in Cambodia and Laos um, at this time in, in sort of the, what we call the medieval period when temples were being constructed in those regions. And are those to be looked at as being derivative? I don't think so. Because you know, when you stand as a colonized nation yourself, you're very careful to adopt the role of being colonizer of somebody else's culture. And, and so how do you present the history of temples in Southeast Asia? That's one of the questions I try and raise in the editorial of the book, which I, in which I ask that, you know, in what way do we want to look at Southeast Asian culture? And how much do we want to acknowledge the indigenous developments in temples in Southeast Asia as not being only responding to myths that were coming out of India, but actually adopting them, turning them into their own and expressing their culture through the, through the apparatus of the temple. Um, there is a section in the book that deals with the temple as a documenter of other forms of cultural and festive expressions. So how the temple preserves a history of Indian dance and music as a patron of dance and music. And the narratives that you were talking about just now, the Itihasa Purana tradition of narratives, and how many of these rich narratives were turned into drama or dance dramas, which were actually performed and maintained within a temple context. And um, this ties up with Indian nationalism because there was a, a system of how the revival of Indian dance happened through the documentation of these temples in the late 19th and early 20th century that gave people an idea how to dance in the style of Orissa or how to dance in the style of Tamil Nadu. And the, the, the documentation of the mudras and the hastas and the postures, asans in the, in the sculpture became a kind of a manifesto for the revival of the dance traditions, which were later called the classical traditions. And that's something we're gonna deal with in our next volume which is going to come out on, uh, which is a reader on, on the dance traditions of India. Um, so I, I think together, the four volumes of these readers are going to build up, I hope, a kind of a very broad survey 
of what is the changing way in which we look at the shifts in the discipline of art history, architecture, dance, textiles, and so on. One of the main concerns of this book is also to produce a historiography. It's really just to say that, you know, those articles that were written in the 1950s had certain pressing concerns. They were responding to demands in their own time of the formation of the modern Indian nation state. And what does it mean to have Indian temples? Whereas articles that are written in the 90s and 2000s are much more relaxed about their cosmopolitanism and are addressing other concerns. And so I think um, the shift in the tone of writing takes place in a, in a major way with articles that you can see in this reader, depending on the date on which they're written. So I, I think it also brings to light to the reader how our perception of Indian culture itself is, is shifting, it's changing. It's fascinating. It may well be because this is so beyond my niche. I mean, I study uh, text, as you well know. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I wish more people, uh, I wish this was more popular, right? This is a high caliber, um, a beautiful, um, you know, fascinating read. And so part of the pleasure of the podcast is publicizing works, uh, particularly as this, which I think could easily uh, uh, be much better harnessed in academic settings and continuing study settings, et cetera. Um, so in the podcast notes, I'll certainly include a link for how folks can procure this, uh, this uh, special edition and really all of your publications. Um, was there anything else about either this, this uh, publication or the magazine in general that you hope we touch on today? Well, I, I really think that we must make a plea and in some way for being able to reach out directly to our readers um, going forward. I think eliciting reader response now through social media and through the new kinds of platforms is something that we are paying attention to. And I think we still want to maintain our model to be able to try and reach out to the wider public for the lowest possible price that we can. So digital editions can sometimes be cheaper than the print editions. But a lot of research, you know, we, we plan our issues years in advance to be able to do a lot of thorough research and vet it by peer-reviewed sort of editors. But our great model for MAL and the reason for MAL's sustainability all these years has been that it has made scholarship available in accessible language at affordable prices. Um, so we pay a lot of attention to the editorial process um, to bring out a mark, to make it as accessible as possible so that there can be a density of ideas, but hopefully in simplified language. Um, and and that, is, um, th that remains a challenge and it is a time-consuming process. And um, I, I just hope more and more people can actually begin to recognize that um, because a good book is still something which is a joy to be able to fix through and hold, as you were saying. And the larger format of an art book, art book and an art magazine does actually allow you to um, enliven it visually. Um, the presentation is something which has always been important historically for Marv, and it continues to remain so even now. And, and I hope we can continue this actually, and it needs a lot of support to be able to continue this endeavor. And I really hope the, the listeners on your podcast will, will respond affirmatively to this plea. How, um, 
So just to bring it home, how can folks support you? What are ways in which or the best way in which folks can support the magazine? Well, subscription apart at a more simple level, um, we do have different models for sponsorship and people can um, support endeavors that allow us to reach out to libraries all over South Asia with copies of the printed magazine or afford um, subscriptions even digitally for people who would not normally be able to access this magazine. So universities, colleges, et cetera, that don't have budgets to be able to access these things. Students who can't afford copies um, are given copies for, for free. Um, we have models whereby people can fund our research and writing or fund the nature of the activities that we have to undertake when we have to document a particular site or document a particular ritual. We have to send photographers into that space. They have to wait for 15 days, 20 days for the moon to be in the right location when a particular ritual has to be performed. You know, I mean, all of which adds up really. And um, when you're commissioning work. And so funding research or purchasing photographs that exist in uh, archives to be able to allow authors to substantiate their case and to prove what they are trying to say through the visual evidence um, does cost a lot of money. And so we do have different kinds of sponsorship that is available. And that's what allows us to maintain our charitable status and our not-for-profit status um, that people can. So we do have a link on our website that people can follow for how to support Marg and um, listeners to the podcast who are interested can always be in touch with the Marg team who can uh, talk them through different kinds of models that they can they can follow um, for sponsorship. Excellent. Well, we will provide all of those links in the podcast notes. Um, I want to thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great to be here. Yeah. My pleasure. So for those listening, we have been speaking um, um, with Dr. Uh, Namana Huja, uh, who's the general editor of, uh, of, of MARG, uh, in addition to being a professor and dean of School of Arts and Aesthetics at uh, JNU. Um, uh, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and uh, keep contemplating the importance of uh, the temples in India and beyond. Take care.